film and television. Merely entertainment, right? No. There's so much more to film and television that changes our perspectives. And as a result, we can have different, either realistic expectations or non-realistic expectations about what life is really like. Whether it be horror that helps us develop a habit of turning every light on in the house or a comedy that helps us relieve tension in the saddest times of our life. I want to go in the Wayback Machine and find out exactly what movie helped shape you. I'm Oma Shadi, and welcome to the Between the Bannisters podcast. So I'm not even going to say I'm excited. You already know that I'm excited. I'm excited every week. But today I'm excited. <laughs> I guess I'm extremely excited. I don't know. But I'm really happy to talk to one of my favorite people on the planet who is a 90s graduate just like me, born in 19... Uh, is Miss Shelley Gustafson. And Shelley is a writer of drama, supernatural horror, and grounded sci-fi scripts. And was recently honored as one of the 13 female-identifying filmmakers accepted into the inaugural Nix Horror Collective 13 Minutes of Horror Film Festival, which ran on Shutter in the autumn of 2021. Her current feature, Homesick, co-written with director Jim Vendiola, is in pre-production in New York City's Chicago Film Project, who produced the award-winning Jennifer Reeder feature Knives and Skin, which was recently acquired by IFC Midnight and world premiered at Berlinale 2019, also making stops at Tribeca, Fantasia, Fantastic Fest, Vienna International, and many, many more. Shelley, can you please tell the folks what movie we are talking about today? Today, we are talking about the Merchant Ivory production from 1992, Howard's End. I'm excited. Not the the remake. (laughs) I am fiercely loyal. I refused to watch the remake. You know, McFadden is a god. Billy Atwell's really good. I refused to watch the remake. That's okay. I don't have anything against that. The 1992 Emma Thompson, Helena Bonham Carter, Anthony Hopkins, Howard's End. Yes. Oh my gosh. And Redgraves. Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah, this, Vanessa Redgrave and James Wilby. Oh my God, James Wilby, Mr. Mr. Uh, Merchant Ivory himself. So but it's so exciting because this cast is really chock full of excellent caliber actors. And I mm-hmm. feel like you kind of get that, I guess you kind of get that with a lot of period pieces, but it doesn't always work out. But I feel like anything that Emma Thompson touches is magic anyway. <laughs> yes. And this is where she got and this is where she got her Oscar. So yeah. So let's um, talk about it. Tell me why this movie above all others. Well, the so the why and then kind of get into it'll transition, I'm sure, into the shaping me question. But um, I'm just, especially in my youth, and I've come back to it now. It's kind of funny. I'm now in my late 40s. And this movie, I first saw it like over 30 years ago. And in my youth, like I'm just, it was like a hopeless romantic. Like I had posters of pre-Raphaelite paintings on my walls. And I was fascinated by the whole Edwardian era, this idea that modernity was still exciting because they hadn't run into like the mechanized industrial slaughter of World War I. Like it was still very much a transitory point, very romantic, just sweeping and beautiful. And I grew up in a very, very small rural community in Southern Iowa. And the school system was great for what was offered me, but escapism through film and theater was my life. And I grew up when it was like the big tent poles were the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Action fair, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, genre laden, but you know, the family feature was also the four quadrant, could be a little bit more adult, but everybody saw the same movies. Yeah. And 
thinking back now, because I write a lot of genre, I realized that clean efficiency is what I still bring into my story. Like you can jump right into a story. You can meet the characters really well, but everybody saw these movies. And I lived about an hour south of Des Moines, very small rural community. And there was a small art house movie theater in Des Moines, sadly, that's closed called The Varsity. I actually, in going through my, my mental head, I found somebody's master's thesis from Iowa State University about the varsity theater. Oh, awesome. Because it was a family run theater from like the 20s and it closed maybe about 15, 20 years ago because the family's whole credence was, we're going to play what we like. Mm -hmm. I saw Ken Brand as Henry V there. I saw the brothers McMullen. I saw four weddings and a funeral. I saw Merchant Ivory. And Merchant Ivory, you know, the Sony Picture Classics Blue and Samuel Goldwyn and Janice, like these the mid nineties were this perfect sweet spot of like foreign backed art house mm-hmm. or small scale British art house before kind of the hyper violent tongue in cheek American art house indies of the late nineties really came. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was this romantic. I, I wanted to be a fairy as I was a kid. I love British history. I'm an Anglophile, like all these things kind of swimming through me. And the first time I sat down and when I saw this movie, it just struck me. It was like drama. I was not exposed to drama up until this point. Drama was like the boring like things my grandmother or my mother might watch on PBS or something. Like I didn't care. <laughs> Nova. You know, I was like Indiana Jones. I want to be Princess Leia. Like pew, 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 action. <laughs> and I I was sitting and I think it was also like just being a huge Anglophile and part of my, my family history. And, and it's, it's <laughs> in retrospect, looking at it, I mean, like a lot of period pieces, it's very white. It is yes. so white. Like you have to just drop all indigenous and colonial knowledge out of your head and just yes. jump in because you can't look at it any other way. Mm-hmm. But I was sitting in this theater and I think it was the first time I saw that drama was okay letting a character breathe. Mm-hmm. That you, we know as screenwriters now that specificity is key. The more specific you can be about your character and their stakes and their problems or their quirks or how they walk, like as specific as you can get makes your stories more rich. And here I was looking at this period piece where the specificity was already baked in. Mm -hmm. And I think actually today I'm laughing because I'm working on a biopic. I think period picks, especially period biopics are always the Oscar bait and the award season bait Mm -hmm. because- King's speech, things like that. They love sweeping history. They love triumph, but the specificity of an era is baked in. You don't Mm -hmm. have to do as much work in world building and it helps the plot and it makes everything just richer. And so I all of a sudden was just hit over the head with the beauty of quiet. Mm -hmm. You know, you could see- you know, it was the first time production design really smacked me in the face, like Merchant Ivory films in particular, because they're trying to evoke a very targeted era, like props and costumes. Like I, I have had a passing interest in that kind of stuff, watching, you know, kind of the Indiana Joneses and the Star Wars. Like I was aware artists had to make up that shit, mm-hmm. but it was the first time I was sitting here going, I am enveloped in this world. And because I'm enveloped, I can step back and just focus on the characters. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's also why biopics and period pieces are so successful still today is the production design allows you to have the escapism so you can still have the human the human connection through the situations the characters are in. Mm-hmm. So time time be damned or period be damned or social mores be damned. You are hyper aware of relationships with siblings or jealousy 
or not being able to feed your family. Like all, it really boils your attention down to the communication between the characters and what they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And so the eye candy is literally just the eye candy. And so for me, it was the first time I kind of stopped and saw, this is how filmmaking can be. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to have quiet and beauty. Yes. And, and discomfort. Muddy, and discomfort. And and being, as you know, a writer who often is pitching or having people review your work. And I remember listening to uh, uh, Lindsay, Lindsay Duran talk about this once at Austin, which is people don't let first acts breathe anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't let you give time with a character anymore. And so it was the first time I like this quiet little girl who just wanted to like go to England and study archaeology and live in castles and get out of this small town, Iowa, crazy, you know, everybody hates their upbringing when they're, when yes. they're when <laughs> 100%. And, I, and I just sat in this theater and it was like color and light and music and, you know, Anthony Hopkins, who with the way he holds a piece of paper, you can see a thousand things going on mm-hmm. in his character's head. And I had not been exposed to that before. So it was like my, and then I went back and I had seen other Merchant Ivory films, you know, Room with a View and, you know, and Ruth, um, Ruth Prower Jambala, who did the adaptation, she worked with Merchant Ivory on almost all their pieces and she did Remains of the Day, which is still one of the most yeah. stunning. Ooh, stunning that one is... Yeah, so oh, that God. was kind of, but this was kind of like my intro drug to Merchant Ivory and um now because of my I do a lot of genre writing but I mm. know that this this kind of started this idea of the visual world in which you drop these characters is just as beautiful and just as worthy of respect oh and that's probably why I write very extensive things <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that so my is my my I'm working with a couple of directors and my and my producers and that so zero apologies I just write expensive <laughs> just write, I write, just, I write expensive. Uh, right off the top, me and the line producer aren't going to be buds, but yeah, exactly. But, that, but that's why, that's why this movie, that's why this movie. But I absolutely love that. And I think this is a really great place to, to ask this because how do you feel? And we kind of talked before we began the, the podcast, how do you feel that it shaped you from when you saw it to how you kind of parlay what you've learned into your work now well I think what's this I I know I'll come back to a section but I'm going to talk later I think you're going to ask me about my favorite part but the first 10 minutes of this movie when I watched it as a kid affect me at a kind of subconscious emotional level Mm -hmm. and I went back and studied it to prep for talking with you and the crafting of the structural beats is absolutely exquisite and so when I was younger, I think this is a trend in every artist's life, but you, you can't define or describe or articulate how something affects you. And right. later you're given the training and the tools to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost like I was having a conversation with myself because thematically and emotionally, the things that affected me when I was younger was because of my personal interests. Mm-hmm. And I kind of rediscovered those personal interests, I'd say in the past five to six years. And so as a screenwriter though, like going back, like you, because the, again, the world and the specificity are baked into period pieces, the characters themselves deliver everything for you. The conflict is there, all the essential context of where you are, their relationships, their relationship to this world. The dialogue handles everything simultaneously. You're meeting the characters 
you're, you're getting to know the specificity of their mannerisms and their relationships, how they relate to this world class structure. It is so efficiently crafted and showing how kind of the whirling dervish of these women, these Schlegel mm-hmm. women, Emma Thompson and Helena Bonham Carter in particular, are just kind of dragging you along completely unaware what's going to happen to themselves and everybody attracted to them. And the structure of was just this this joy to watch. And but as, emotionally as a kid or as a teenager, I just saw a world that was embodying all the philosophical struggles I was dealing with. Mm-hmm. This idea of being attracted to the land and the natural world and maybe being more feral or more pagan and this idea of English English ancestry at the crossroads of becoming more industrialized and more mechanized and ancestry and lineage and people who talked slower and who liked art and poetry and versus people who were hyper-masculine and driven by industrial, more violent, more kind of capitalist structures. And I couldn't, I couldn't articulate that as a kid. It was just like, oh, I like pre-Raphaelite paintings and I like the land and I like old crusty houses that have vines growing on them. And why is that? And it was truly this idea of escapism as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how it defines and how, and how, it, de- and how <laughs> it defines characters and structurally though as a screenwriter looking back like you meet and I'll, and I'll go through the first act kind of before the opening 10 minutes later but you meet these people and after the first 10 11 minutes even though it's sumptuous and there's beautiful and there's sort of an orchestral score and many lines of dialogue aren't spoken you know exactly like they're stuck in their ways. So despite the Gibson girl hair and the talking about paddocks versus garages and ponies and sexual mores of young people dating, like despite all that crap, you have set up perfectly the dynamic between three households and how they're all going to clash together. And as a teenager, I just saw who am I rooting for? Yeah. And why is this person emotionally more attractive to me? And I can see it coming a mile away. Why can't they and, and now later looking at as a writer, I'm seeing, I think Jeffrey Lieber has this beautiful quote, like good scripts are good, but like great scripts are string theory. Like you see every nuanced choice of when you're meeting somebody and when you flip to meeting somebody else and how they set up the clash of philosophies. So it looks exquisitely organic and not predetermined. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's right. Just, Which is really hard to do. Um, it's, so, it's so hard to do and yeah. And I and think that that's such a good point that you make, especially when in describing the the households and about like people talking slower and you do have this, like this industrial age clash of people that are living life and have nothing but time, mm-hmm. meeting those who feel like they are running out of time. And there's this great, there's this great character who, um, I don't, do I give spoilers? I don't know if I should give spoilers. Oh, go ahead. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave, <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave plays, um, and the sun has changed. So now nobody can see me and you can't see me either because the sun has changed. Uh, <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave plays Mrs. Wilcox. She's kind of the mm-hmm. magical matriarch of the family. And eventually she passes away, but she kind of represented like this pagan pole of land and identity and she talked slower and her family was like always overwhelming and hyper masculine and interrupting her and she was the one who was born in this house and was raised in this house and the house was hers but her kids didn't care about it her husband didn't care about it they pulled her to london she had to live in a flat 
and this idea that she meets Emma Thompson's character, Margaret. And they become friends because this woman has nothing in this city where she she's literally made ill living in this bustling city. Mm -hmm. And so you, as a kid, it was this kind of pull of like a rural landscape and who fits in a rural landscape and when they're out of their element in the city. And yeah, and, and Emma Thompson's character is just, is just wonderfully tragic. It's not unlike her character she played in Pride and Prejudice, where she's always... She's the, she's the maternal caregiver. She's kind of the linchpin that keeps everybody together, but mm -hmm. she never really gets to be in charge of her own desires. Right. Um, and when she does, she's always making somebody unhappy. So what do you do when you're supposed to be the caregiver for everybody, but your, your happiness causes unhappiness for other people? And it sets up this beautiful relationship between these two women, which of course gets the whole plot going. But as a kid, I was just seeing this idea of you're so attuned to your land and your heritage. And when nobody else around you cares about that, you will gravitate towards any human being that will stop and notice that with you. And so the beauty of the structure of the first act of this movie is it, it showcases how the philosophical world differences are automatically stacked against these people. And I haven't even brought in Leonard Bast, the third, the third household. There's the Wilcoxes, there's the Schlegels, and there's the Bass. The Wilcoxes, it's, you know, scions of industry, colonial, you know, literally work colonizing Africa. The Schlegels, who are half German, which is mm -hmm. very important in an Edwardian world, half German, artists, poets, suffragettes, they have tea parties with intellectuals, they talk a mile a minute, and blah, 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 blah. it's Emma Thompson, and it's Helena Bonham Carter, and everybody just thinks they're amazing and fascinating, and they talk a mile a minute, blah, blah, blah. but it's a story about these women who can't really do anything, but they're upper class, so they have the privilege of thinking they can't. And then you have the Bass, embodied with Leonard Bass, who is a poor banker who just wants to read poetry and books and better himself. And he's literally being swallowed up in poverty of a London that does not care about him. And so these three families get woven together, but it's all because you have Mrs. Wilcox and Margaret Schlegel, who are two women who are brought together because of a love of a house. And it rips all these families apart. And so as a kid, you're like, holy shit, emotion, <laughs> drama, feeling. There's wisteria vines hanging off of the house. And they're talking about like Anglo-Saxons and Celts. And they're talking about like old wives' tales of pig's teeth and the bark. And, and, and I'm just like, oh my God, this is me. This is me. And as, you know, as a 46-year-old woman, I'm watching this movie going, the goddamn first 10 minutes are the most exquisitely paced way to introduce an ensemble. I'm so jealous. I can't do this. <laughs> but you can, and you can. And it's a great thing. To, and it's a great thing to study. But the lessons to take away are: it's okay to have a long first act. Yes. It's okay to have an ensemble, and it's mm -hmm. okay to let moments breathe. Yes. It's okay. And, and it's I so funny it, what you're saying about the the first act because you see that a lot with people that try to like just kind of drop you into things and care about people right away and it's really difficult if your character is not fully established if you haven't done the character work in act one nothing will work no nothing will work and i think this might just be segueing into your favorite part most formative scene because i'm just going to talk about the first 10 yeah. minutes like, Go ahead. okay Go we ahead. just have to talk about the first 10 minutes um okay so in the first 10 minutes of howard's end you have world building character establishments and ensemble core bodies, the relationships between those ensemble core bodies, history, drama, conflict, humor, and thematic issues of class structure and larger philosophies that are all gonna run into each other in the first 10 minutes. Because you see oh, wow. Vanessa Redgrave 
strolling slowly through a garden at night. And it's like mystical romanticism and the power of connections of the land. And, you know, granted, we're not talking about like, you know, I also have indigenous background and like, the, okay, white connections to the land, especially in England, unless you're mm -hmm. Scots or Welsh or Irish, totally Anglo-Saxon English, like just, okay, connections to the land, we'll set our colonial hat aside. Mm -hmm. So um, the feminine power of the quiet and the beautiful and her skirts are dragging and the moonlight is coming down and the flowers are their different color. Everything is like saturated lavenders and blues. And, but she's looking inside her house, outside where she is, it's like blue and lavender and dark and she's quiet. She's not saying anything. She's almost like this ghost or this fairy, but inside it's like board games and sports and joking and laughing like this hyper-masculine trope of like her daughter and her sons and her husbands and she clearly loves them. And they're inside where it's all like fires and warmth and, and fiery oranges and reds. And she's outside and she's completely, completely quiet, just observing. Mm -hmm. So you could interpret it as she's either left out, she's yeah. choosing to be isolated and introverted, or she is more of the land outside and they are in a different world. Right. And the winds and the plants and the, everything's heady with romance. And the younger Schlegel daughter, Helen, is visiting. And she is kind of in a crush, kind of in a relationship with one of the Wilcox sons. And they kiss because, you know, dark, beautiful plants and the, the, the romance of the landscape. And it's a passionate kiss. And the next day in the cold sobriety of breakfast, like, oh, shit, that was a mistake. But she's written a letter saying they're engaged. Because in the, the seductive landscape of night, they agreed to, they wanted to get married. But in the cold light of day, they realized they didn't. And so yeah. all of a sudden they have to send off a letter and Margaret is back in London. Helen's older sister, Margaret, lives in London with their aunt and her little brother in their cute little row house with all their like, you know, Edwardian modern clothing and their tied up hair and their books and their intellectualism and they're talking a mile a minute. And her sister, Helen, has written a letter saying, I'm engaged to, uh, to Paul Wilcox. And crap, well, the aunt hops in a, a, a car and says, I got to get there. They've got to meet the family. We've got to introduce each other. And this whole humorous miscommunication she gets in the yeah. car with the different Wilcox son they have a huge fight why the hell would my my brother marry your niece blah, blah 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 they all insult each other and everything falls apart in the first 10 minutes of yeah. the movie <laughs> and it's silly and it's humorous and you're seeing a clash of worldviews and philosophies and romance and land and modernism and women versus men and cold logic versus emotional intelligence and it's just it's done that mm -hmm. could be the movie yeah. But then what happens is the they have this beautiful pacing that they do is every time you see a Wilcox Schlegel interaction, they always end it with a coda with a Leonard Bast. And this man who just wants the opportunity to better himself mm -hmm. and to be in nature and to see the stars, but he can't. And that's yeah. kind of a reoccurring thread. But yeah. those first 10 minutes just structurally are beautiful. There's drama, there's humor, there's landscape, there's quiet, there's music, there's different lighting changes, and you're meeting five, six, seven, eight, you're, you're meeting almost 10 characters in the first 10 minutes, and you have no problem tracking them at all. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting about those three families is that you have people with a certain, they all have a certain station issue. You have, you know, someone like Ruth who is a little bit beleaguered with her station, because nobody really listens to her, even though she is this large matriarch. Mm -hmm. You have the Schlegel sisters who have options of station. And then you have someone like Leonard who desperately trying to rise above his station in any means possible. 
and that like kind of lack of opportunity kind of is peppered throughout this and what's so interesting is there's no everyone could relate to someone here right and I think that's what's so funny is when you're younger you focus on emotional romantic energy coming out of stories especially like being being a big period romantic person and like this tragic inevitability of where you see it going and you identify with different characters at different points in your life but I think especially as we age in it and especially in the socio-political climate of the past few years empathy and pity for the desire to better somebody's station doesn't mean you give it to them right and there's a lot especially kind of the beginning of the second act dealing a lot with the schlegels meaning well that they are women of privilege Mm-hmm. but they think they're modern they think they're intellectual they think they're progressive and suffragettes but they know they are trapped by lack of inheritance inability to control their own real estate uh how marriage and inheritance dictates everything for them but they role play as white liberal women mm-hmm. and that their privilege is because they can access different parts of their life when they choose to because it's a very casual thing to them reading poetry, having salons, having ladies clubs that talk about how would you help Mr. Leonard Vast, going to the opera, going to concerts, they have the luxury and privilege of doing that. Mm -hmm. And so whereas somebody like Leonard Vast, who has to sneak poetry and novels when he can, uh, stays up late and goes walking to look at the stars, um, just has no fresh air. Mm -hmm. And this idea that for him, it's never a casual privilege. It is truly life and death. And he's like almost a plaything to them. And then you have the Wilcoxes at the top of the pecking order, which is like, everything is cold. Everything is logical. You can't care about the poor. Why would you make this decision? And of course, Mr. Wilcox himself gives advice and things that cause things to take tragic turns. But in the middle of it all, you have Emma Thompson's character, which is Margaret, which is this idea of she is truly stuck. She eventually marries Henry Wilcox after the first Mrs. Wilcox dies. And all the drama of trying to please her sister, she's always been the mother role to her sister, falls out the window because of various problems with Mr. Leonard Vast. And the Wilcoxes never truly accept her because she's too much of the crazy, flighty, intellectual, German, poetic, modern woman who has the romanticism streak that their mother had. And that's probably why Um, they were meant to be, you know, meant to be coming together. And I'm, I'm kind of talking around the title, but Howard's End is the name of the house. And so by the time those beautiful first 10 minutes are done and we're into act two and the Wilcoxes have moved to London and Mrs. Wilcox is very ill, they befriend each other because she has nobody else. Uh, Margaret Emma Thompson's character and Vanessa Redgrave's Mrs. Wilcox, the, the first Mrs. Wilcox. And this idea that this woman who is magical and slow and po- she actually speaks in poetic rhymes and, she, and the city makes her unstable she loves the countryside. And when she hears that Margaret's going to lose her house, which to Emma Thompson's character is like, that is what it is. They're going to knock it down and they're going to build flats. And it's just modern London. It is so upsetting to Mrs. Wilcox, who is literally like a fairy of the land. The plot really is on her deathbed. She writes on a piece of paper, I'm giving Howard's End to my house to Margaret. Mm-hmm. And the, the Wilcox family pretends it never existed. And they burn yeah. it and they throw it away. And that is the beaut- that is the inevitable fate of the plot. Eventually yeah. the Schlegel girls do get the house, but they go through hell intermixing their lives with the Wilcoxes and the Bass 
but it is to me as this child is like pre you know predetermined destiny of fate and magic in the land i love that whereas as a screenwriter now looking at it structurally everything they set up beautifully in the first act those relationships are so organic that of course eventually the house will end up in their hands mm-hmm. but you don't see that you don't see the magical invisible hand of the plot right right when you're a teenager um but yeah, lost in the romanticism of you get it. lost <laughs> in the romanticism and, and the women who the women who mean well but everything blows up in their face and right. the women who always will always know where it's going right and yeah and i and i think it just comes back to like i find the edwardian time period completely fascinating completely fascinating not unlike the 1990s politically mm-hmm. you thought everything liberal and progressive and wonderful was going to happen and it was going to be a great place you know nope. <laughs> so let's talk about let's talk about our 90s well like we were going to rock the vote and cure aids and yeah, it's, silence it's so equals crazy. death and yeah everybody you know and then the fox news came along and got mad about everything yeah and that was really interesting because it's and i was just describing this to the other the other day because it we were the generation of you know we redid uh woodstock which was like the dumbest idea ever in life (laughs) yeah and then we tried to correct it by doing like Lollapalooza. but it was you know we we have this kind of our this generation that we were in you know was very you know was like to your point very liberal we were rocking the vote we were we were thinking about like aids aids was represented on television like uh pablo from the real world first season that was something that was trying to get people to understand and destigmatize something like AIDS. And that was, there was a lot of heavy lifting to do for a generation that literally was cosplaying activism. Right. And, and I think those mechanisms yeah. put in place have still continued on. Yeah. And, but I think we can all point to there is, there is a large scale cultural laziness that kicks in when you think of course now we've made it better it will stay better mm-hmm. and, and you know everything has shown us in the past 30 years that isn't true you have to put in the hard work yes and you have to advocate and lift up the people who are doing the hard work and re-watching Howard's End was really was really just heartbreaking because I went in I was the romantic idealism that kid who was like well if you love the land and if you're if you're a powerful enough mother figure or sister yeah. And you love each other enough, and you, if you read enough poetry, everything will be great. And there's nothing stopping the Wilcoxes from doing what they do. And right. so, but at the end, you have Wilcoxes brought low, and the women have inherited the house. So, in the world of the plot, they win. But, you know, knowing that World War One is right around the corner and just how everything culturally was going to completely shift, I think. Right. I mean, Ian e. Forster being a queer man. And having all of his writings are stunning and being in the closet, you know, his whole life and Morris being published not until after he died, which is also stunning Merchant Ivory film, stunning Merchant Ivory film. Like my first introduction to Hugh Grant was Four Weddings and a Funeral, but you need to see Morris just, oh, and James Willoughby again, a granny uh, and, you know, and Rupert Everett and, or, I'm sorry, Rupert Graves, <laughs> Rupert Graves, not Rupert Everett, um, <laughs> my two Ruperts, um, but he was so astute emotionally in his observations mm-hmm. one of the few male identifying writers who i have no problem reading when it comes to defining female issues because he was a closeted gay man mm-hmm. and could not be out and the edwardian period in general for all the reasons we listed like it was just this wonderful wonderful heady mix but for me emotionally i think 
back then merchant ivory movies literally saved me like is it is a teenage kid in southern iowa not knowing yeah like i like history i like archaeology i like art you know i'm in i'm in drama club i can be on stage and what do i do with this life and it was this idea that you could feel different and artistic and a little untrained and a bit lost and wanting escapism and romance but film provided all of that to you in a controlled space Mm -hmm. and in particular kind of the foreign indie art house window which I was not offered normally I had to like seek it out and that's why the varsity theater was so spectacular like I walked in I drove my 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 crappy Hyundai scoop up to Des Moines (laughs) through the countryside and you walked in and they took this like 1920s theater and it was a pretty rundown neighborhood. It was near Drake University. John August went to Drake, by the way, um, near Drake University. But like my parents were like horrified that I was going to be over by Drake. Like that's just a bad part of town, which it's, it's fucking Des Moines. Like it's Des Moines. Um, right. How bad can it be? It's, yeah, I, I've lived in various parts not, of Chicago. It's um, not Englewood. It's, right. And, but like you walk in. And you could buy a Toblerone and a bottle of Evian water. Of course you could. And, and they, because they showed art house Sony Picture Classics and Janice Films. And it was Toblerone. like, I could walk in as this like teenage girl in Southern Iowa with my big ass hair mm-hmm. and buy a Toblerone and sit down and watch foreign films. And yeah. now it makes me really emotional to think about that it's gone. But like, it was just this beautiful... It was like somebody giving you a warm artistic hug. And so I think that whole time in my life and not knowing what I wanted to do with my life and knowing like I'm nerdy, I want to leave where I grew up to go to college. And that film, you know, just, I'm just also a huge Emma Thompson fan, you know, and following her arc and her career, you know, early years with Ken Branagh and later. And just this idea that it is a staunchly kind of white period. It's everything now that they try to do in Mm -hmm. Hollywood and it doesn't work Mm -hmm. and I think it's because you had the magical trinity of James Ivory Ishmael Merchant who now has sadly passed on and Ruth also who has passed on and you they had foreign backing and said fuck it we're gonna do it this way yeah yeah and they didn't sit down and look at IP they didn't sit down and look at budget I'm sure well I'm sure they did but they said this is the story and Ruth is gonna adapt EM's work and you, you will sit down and be completely enveloped and it's just yeah and you can yeah. different you can definitely tell as the years go on especially where we are in the industry now what the engines are that drive certain projects like yeah. this is driven this is a story driven character driven project atmospheric mm-hmm. project mm-hmm. and then you have something that where and i feel like and maybe it's just me, I feel like the Americanized or the very like westernized adaptations of like Poirot or when we get our hands on like Christie or something like that, it just does not have the same chuspa as something like this. Like mm-hmm. there is something, there's definitely an ingredient that's missing and it's like a secret sauce kind of thing. Like there's something about this cast and this movie and what this does and movies that are quintessentially along these lines that cannot be reproduced if your heart isn't where it needs to be for the project. 
right. Uh, Joe Wright, uh, Joe Wright, uh, he was on the Deacons, Team Deacons podcast. And I think he talked about something similar because I would kind of view Joe Wright as kind of the inheritor mm-hmm. of this thread. And he even said like the, like when he did Pride and Prejudice um, or, you know, or his Anna Karenina is like very immersive theat- theatrical. I'm using like a big T, like you're, you feel like you're looking into a proscenium of a stage mm-hmm. with his mm-hmm. worlds or like even how he did atonement. Um, and I haven't seen Cyrano yet, but like, you know, he has a puppetry background yeah. and he has a theater background and the way he lights things and treats worlds, he says now like that, that mid-tier budget, nobody does that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we're seeing, especially in the marketplace the past few years, the things that are getting critical acclaim are the quiet and the beautiful. The worlds are just much smaller because the budgets are much smaller. Mm-hmm. And, but back then the theater the theater film overlap was very strong in our house cinema you know you have an anthony hopkins you have an emma thompson but now the theater film pipeline mm-hmm. is into marvel right you know cumberbatch and hiddleston and zawe ashton and i mean even charlie oh my god i'm blanking on charlie's last name he plays daredevil i know Cox, charlie cox Yes, thank you. Yes. I mean, the working, <laughs> I'll never forget about the working wow. critically acclaimed stage actors are being mm-hmm. cast in Marvel films. Yeah. And, and nothing nothing against that. They need to pay their bills and I get it. And it's a, it's a very smart business move. Mm-hmm. But it the the art house indie films now that have that, that struggle tooth and nail to get financed, they they don't have that pipeline anymore. And also mm-hmm. they're streaming. Also they're streaming. You can't mm-hmm. You can't get anybody now because there's so many streaming channels that have their own episodic content that they're casting for. Mm-hmm. And so it was truly this kind of like the 90s were romantic and nostalgic for me for a variety of reasons because you saw artists coming together to make art just right. for the sake of art. Mm-hmm. And I think that when when James Ivory won his Oscar for Call Me By Your Name, like it was incredibly emotionally for me. You have yeah. a gay man who lost his partner, who was his creative partner. Mm-hmm. who made his career adapting the works of a gay man mm-hmm. winning an Oscar at the later years of his creative life for mm-hmm. a story about a gay teen and it was just it was just like yeah, yeah that's... I was a mess I was a total uh... mess <laughs> I was a mess I love that movie oh my god <laughs> yeah I want to talk about it right now so um, yeah I, I like horror I like grounded sci-fi I write horror I, I write a lot of supernatural kind of feral nature gone wild yeah. folk horror a lot about older women with knowledge of the land or kind of witchcraft or paganism and it's all because i'm a stupid anglophile kid who totally geeks out about my british heritage who loves merchant ivory movies who thinks things should be visually beautiful and you should have a lot of character drama and there it is (laughs) i i once was in a pitch and i said i consider myself a drama writer i just happen to write about monsters and the guy was like that's how you're going to describe yourself from here on out yeah yeah, I love and, it. and it's totally because of Merchant Ivory and it's totally because of Howard Dunn. Howard's own. And I think yeah. that that is so, that's so essential to be able to, and that's what makes me really excited about doing podcasts, like doing this podcast because it's not, it's so much bigger than, oh, I just really liked it. It's just one of my favorite movies. Yeah. It just carries so far. Like I just did, um, uh, Nenia Taylor just interviewed me about my favorite movie is Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. So and I say it because it's like, oh, you just liked fantasy movies. And I like, I loved Dark Crystal and I loved, you know, obviously like Labyrinth and Legend, but being a, a child, a biracial child in the eighties mm-hmm. in a very small town, talk about wanting to be anyone or anything else. Mm-hmm. And 
I feel like that's that's really where it is. It was like in this world, I would not be an outsider. So mm-hmm. I'm definitely on board and I'm definitely into it. And to think about like that's where I kind of build my genre stories from is is not necessarily like location, but from fantasy forward. Like what is the strangest possible thing that could happen right now? Mm-hmm. And let's do that. And yeah. that's kind of where it, you know, it led me academically to being a behavioral therapist and a cognitive behavioral therapist at that because the mind is a fucked up place to sit in and there's so much that can go on in there and there's so much that we imagine and that kind of hitting head on with being very fantasy driven is kind of where I sit simply because those worlds were really a warm place for me. And I think, I don't remember if you were part of this Twitter conversation once and I apologize because I don't remember who started it. But something about like early childhood came up and I said that I feel like your true self, like your true, like your interests, your likes, your personality Mm -hmm. are kind of like those sweet years between like four and eight, like four Mm -hmm. and 10 Mm -hmm. before the pre-pubescent, pre-pubescent junior high, like, or the, the work life school expectations, like the, the pure childhood the, and you rediscover that aspect of yourself as you're older. Like I had my children later. I mean, later in, in terms of our society, mm-hmm. not later, but like in terms right. of like where I grew up later, you know, I wasn't a mom until I was 33 and 36. Right. And so I really didn't have my identity or myself back till close to my forties, mm-hmm. you know, being the primary stay at home parent and doing yeah. a lot of my writing. And you really rediscover, like, I think the reason why I write what I do is because I'm finally recognizing what I loved as a child. Mm-hmm. and or the things I found interesting in my childhood and that I like if you ask like six-year-old Shelly what do you want to be when you grow up I want to be an actress and an archaeologist well yeah. I did a little bit of the archaeology I did a little bit of the theater but I write screenplays because the romantic history geeky mm-hmm. world building tell stories get to play dress up person is still incredibly important to me mm-hmm. and so watching Howard's End again and remembering who I was as a teenager wanting to go off to college and find that ability to be that true Shelly and get the training because I can't articulate what it is I like. I just know what I don't like. Right. It's a shorter list. (laughs) Exactly. And and, and, And now writing what I write and coming into my own voice and defining what I do and seeing those patterns and trends and watching this movie, especially, I mean, it's a movie, it's a lot about women and the power of women, but how it's subsumed within the society and, you know, every one of my screenplays has one, if not multiple women over 40, if not in their 60s or 70s. Yes, yes, me too. <laughs> and, and so I think there's just I this almost like, you know, again, this is kind of annoying white liberalism, women, female liberalism, like feminism coming out, but like this idea of like women saving the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so seeing this story again kind of brought those themes back that I hadn't noticed when I was a teenager. So when I was a teenager, I was like, oh my God, look at their hair. It's amazing. How to look at the costumes. Right. You know, <laughs> and Anthony Hopkins yeah. is so young. You watch right? this and he's so yeah. young and you don't, because he's so powerful in all the roles he plays. You don't really oh. pay attention to his Jeez. actual life cycle of his right. aging, you know, and, yeah. and seeing and seeing him in the line of winter and stuff when he's younger. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Those, those threads of your childhood that come mm-hmm. back, you don't realize we're there. Yep. Absolutely. Oh, this was wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad we got to talk about this today. Yes. I'm so happy. So tell so, folks where they can find your stuff. 
Yeah. Um, what are you working on? I I have been in pre-production for a while on a supernatural thriller I co-wrote uh, with the brilliant Jim Bendiola, who's a Filipino-American director here in Chicago. Uh, I think we're going into production this summer. It's a great supernatural thriller. We kind of describe it as personal shopper smashed into Malik's Badlands. So oh, it's a murder, I love it. Split timeline, murder mystery. Love it, especially for kids of the 90s. They're going to love it. Um, I'm currently working on a biopic, getting back to our, you know, talking about biopics and history. So I'm, I was laughing the whole time we were having this conversation in my head because the whole like <laughs> tropes and history, um, mm-hmm. th- that one has to remain off the record till we go out, but I'm working with a great producer and director team on that. I love, 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 love the subject matter passionately. Um, they didn't know I was as knowledgeable about the subject matter as I was. They just like, hey, we want a woman's point of view on this. And I was like, mm-hmm. ha ha ha, you have no idea. <laughs> Mustache so twirl. <laughs> my, my, uh, my history self geeked out. Um, but what was great is they said, we know you write genre and fantasy and horror and make this the kind of Shelly let your freak flag, freak flag fly. So it is a very non-traditional biopic. Uh, let me just put it like that. Uh, the subject matter has a huge fan base, um, but the way we're presenting it is so beautiful and different and fantastical. And yeah, so I'm really hoping we're going to take that out to pitch soon to funders and I can talk about it. But, you know, but then I'm going to open myself up a whole can of worms because once it's once it's public, then I'm going to have to leave myself open to all the fans and the flack. But um but yeah. hey, you know what? That's why we do what we do. Exactly. We do what we do. We love telling stories. And uh, so, yeah, I will keep you posted when I can talk about that one yes, publicly. Oh, my God. But where can the folks find you if on any social media platform? Oh, yeah. Where can they find um, your work? Uh, Instagram and Twitter. I am at Shelly Gusto. Uh, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y-G-U-S-T-O. I do have a landing page. My website's horribly not updated. <laughs> ShellyGustafson.com. Okay. And do, do, do. I, I, I worked with you guys on the Knicks um, 13 Minutes of Horror last fall. One of my, my micro short I made with my daughter was there that we filmed on her phone talking about like lands, landscape and flowers and right. connections to the land. The land. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so mostly kind of quiet behind the scenes screenwriting stuff right now. I love it. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for joining us today. This was great. And it's so nice to talk about they still carry these movies with them and and still kind of utilize them throughout their their creative endeavors and it's it's always special just to hear about everybody's point of view for it so it's thank been, you I loved I loved revisiting this I think I joked <laughs> on Twitter yesterday I was getting all the feels because watching a movie again that was important yeah. to you as a kid man passage of time kaboom just got hit with oh, all it gets the emotions you. it definitely gets you because you're just like oh and then obviously you know, seeing like my child loves Labyrinth too, and the generationally being able to like share that is very, very cool. Yeah. Um, so that's my husband and I joke. We actually have a list of movies that we call the like weepy movies. And it's not like your traditional weepies. Like, what ingredients do they always have that make us cry? Yeah. <laughs> Are we up for a rear? Yeah. Passage of time, people getting old, memory, nostalgia. Yeah. Right. Oh, can't take it. <laughs> But this was awesome, Shelly. Thank you so much for being with us, folks. We'll see you Thank next Thank you week. for having me. <laughs> of course.